Hello, my name is Mark, and I'm a part of the youth ministry here. And before I begin, I would just like to say Happy Mother's Day to everyone, all the mothers here, and the ones that aren't here. And I will be reading out of Luke chapter 22, verse 39 through 45. And it goes, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will be yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Thank you, Mark. Isn't it great to uh, hear our young men and women reading from God's Word here at church? And what a great way to bless your mom on Mother's Day. And happy Mother's Day to all you moms that are out there. My mom was in the first service, and as uh, many of you know, uh, I've talked about her in prior sermons, just how important she has been in my own spiritual journey. So uh, it's great to have her in town today. Well, my name is Richard Rock, and I serve as one of the elders here at Central Christian Church. And uh, in case you're wondering, this mark on my face, uh, I am walking proof that man versus light pole, uh, the light pole always wins. But uh, anyway, the, uh, just to get that behind us this morning so it's not a distraction, but um, it is my privilege to uh, bring God's word to you this morning. And if you are new here, then we are really glad that you've chosen to make Central your place of worship this Mother's Day morning. And we pray a lot that Central will be a place where you can discover and develop a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And in fact, I was here at 8 o'clock this morning with our prayer team, and I want you to know that every single person in this room has been prayed for today um, so that you can discover and develop that relationship. So we're really glad that you've joined us this morning. Well, we are in week week three of a four-week series called Bold Belief, uh, How to Pray. Um, Drew Commons is going to be wrapping up the series next week. She is one of our missionaries that you're giving supports, and it'll be a great opportunity to hear, to hear from her. Today, we're going to be looking at Jesus's prayer in Gethsemane and what we should be doing when it doesn't feel as though our prayers are being answered. And uh, to be honest, as you, as you just heard from the reading that Mark did, this is a pretty heavy scene. And maybe in that regard, it's not the the perfect, most fantastic Mother's Day sermon, but I am convinced that God has something for us to learn this morning. Specifically, I think we're going to come to the end and we're going to have seven practical applications that can help us in our effort to pray. So uh, would you join me in prayer as we enter God's Word? Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to study your Word and to learn more about you. Lord, we do want to learn how to pray. We want to learn how to communicate to you and share what is on our hearts. We want to learn to listen to you more. We want to be in closer relationship with you. And Lord, we need the strength that you provide. When your son Jesus was here on the earth, the disciples asked him, teach us to pray, and he did. And this morning we ask that you would teach us to pray because we can't do this without you. We need you, Lord. We love you, and we just commit this time of teaching uh, to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 
Well, here in Luke chapter 22, which Mark read, Jesus is approaching the end of his three-year ministry here on earth. And Jesus knows that he only has a few more hours to live. And for context, uh, in the verses prior to what um, Mark read, uh, Jesus has spent some time in the upper room with his disciples sharing the Last Supper, washing their feet, and describing to them everything that was about to happen to him. Because he knew. From the lie of the betrayer to the denial of the believer, Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen. From the jeers of the crowd to the lash of the whip to the sting of the thorns to the blows of the hammer to the taste of the wine to the searing pain to the piercing of his side to his final breath, Jesus knew exactly what must happen before he could declare it is finished. And Jesus was heavy burdened with this knowledge. And so he did what was natural to him. We read in verse 39 that Jesus went, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. Specifically, he took his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he asked them to pray, and he did the same. And I love here in Luke, because remember, Luke is a compilation of eyewitness accounts that Luke is writing down. And he's writing down the testimony of these disciples who saw Jesus day in and day out for three years. And they don't just say that Jesus went to pray. They say Jesus went as usual to pray. This was Jesus' normal behavior. Every time he was burdened with the circumstances of life, every time the, the challenge of the things that were set before him were heavy Jesus had developed the habit of prayer of bringing those things to God. And so, with just hours to live, we see Jesus dragging himself up to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and to ask that God might spare him from this ordeal. This is one of the heaviest scenes in the whole Bible. Mark read the shortest account that we see in Luke chapter 22. But there are parallel expanded accounts that you can read in Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14 that just pile up the words one on top of another that tell us how sad, the sadness and the sorrow that is in this scene. But I have to be honest, I've always been a little bit challenged with one thing in these accounts, and that is the idea that Jesus comes back and finds the disciples asleep. And actually, in the longer accounts, we see that Jesus comes back on three different occasions to find the disciples asleep. And I've just struggled with that because of all the times to be asleep, why then? Well, in preparation for this morning, I really noticed something for the first time. And that is that in verse 45, it says that Jesus comes back to find the disciples asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Now, I'd often thought about Jesus and the sorrow that he was experiencing but I've never really spent too much time thinking about what the disciples were going through. But consider for a moment what they learned in the upper room. They were told that one of them would betray him, that Satan had asked to sift them all like wheat. Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times. He says, I'm going to be arrested, beaten, tortured, and killed. And worst of all, He says, you're all going to abandon me. 
The disciples couldn't imagine this. It wasn't what they wanted to hear. But the more they listened to Jesus and the more they thought about what Scripture taught, they knew that it was true and it was crushing them. Have you ever been so depressed, so heavy burdened, that all you wanted to do was crawl into bed and sleep? I think that must be what's going on here with the disciples. Jesus has asked them to pray, but they're so distraught, they can't pray, they can't even stay awake. And so we see Jesus in verse 41, going about a stone's throw farther than where the disciples are at, to be alone and to pray. And it says that he kneels down and prays. But as Brooke pointed out in the Good Friday service, the other accounts actually say that Jesus came and he fell down and prayed. And for me, I think that that description sounds more like what's going on here. I, I, it feels more accurate to say that Jesus is so heavy burdened that he's literally coming before God and falling down and praying before God because Jesus knows what's about to happen. And he, he prays to God in verse 42. He says, please, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Is there any other way, any easier way, any method by which these sinful humans can be reconciled to you, that sin and death can be dealt with, anything that is easier than what we know is coming, can we do it that way instead? Jesus cries out three times. It says that his prayers are so earnest that he is literally sweating and it's pouring off him like drops of blood. But Jesus doesn't hear anything. There is no other way offered because this is the terrible thing that has to happen if we're going to be spared destruction. No other way is offered because quite literally, no other way exists. In fact, Part of the reason that we as Christians know that there is no other form of religion or spirituality that can reconcile us to God is because if there was, then Jesus' prayer wasn't answered. If there was, Jesus died needlessly. Jesus had to die so that we could live. How desperate and alone Jesus must have felt at this moment. One of his disciples has betrayed him. The other disciples can't even stay awake. And the closest, most intimate relationship in the entire universe has gone absolutely silent for the first time ever. There were dark forces at work in Jerusalem that night. You see, Satan, who throughout human history has been trying to thwart God's will, was still looking for an opportunity to outmaneuver his creator. Satan was briefly excited in the Garden of Eden, Eden, thinking that he had separated God from man when he convinced Adam and Eve to bite into the, the forbidden fruit, to doubt God's goodness, and how satisfying it must have been for Satan to feel all of creation shudder under the weighty impact of human sin. Satan thought he had done it. He thought he had permanently separated us from God. 
But even as God began to pronounce judgment on Adam and Eve and the whole human race, God began to reveal the outlines of a plan of redemption to bring humans back into relationship with him. Satan had unwittingly played right into the plan of God that God had determined from the beginning of time that he would, through this plan of redemption, demonstrate his infinite love, infinite mercy, grace, compassion by showing how we could be reunited with him. But Satan isn't God. Satan doesn't know what God's plans are. He nervously waits throughout all of history, waiting for any clue as to what is next. What are the clues that tell him what this plan of redemption is going to look like? And every time God and his timing and his will reveals something, Satan tries to act to thwart God's will. When God reveals that the Redeemer will come through his chosen people, the Jews, Satan lashes out with a special animosity toward the Jewish people, and he follows them throughout history with genocide and war and famine and slavery. There can be no Redeemer if there is no Israel. When it's revealed that the Messiah has been born in Bethlehem, Satan arranges through Herod to have all the baby boys under the age of two slaughtered. There can be no redeemer if the child is dead. When that doesn't work and Jesus is revealed as the Messiah, Satan approaches Jesus three times to try and tempt him to switch sides. There can be no redeemer if Jesus joins with Satan. But time and time again, it is Satan that is thwarted, not God. But now Satan believes that he sees one more opportunity. Because in his flawed understanding, he mistakenly believes the same thing that all the cheering crowds on Palm Sunday believed. He believes the same wrong thing that the disciples thought they understood as they walked into the upper room that night. Satan believes that Jesus is there to establish his political kingdom on earth right then. And so Satan begins to think, perhaps if I can kill Jesus, I can still thwart God's plan. There can be no redeemer if Jesus is dead. And so Satan begins to pull together a plan to bring the weight of the world down on Jesus' head. The plot to kill Jesus is both human and satanic. And the pressure that is on Jesus is absolutely supernaturally intense. Jesus, being fully God, knows exactly what's coming. And being fully human, Jesus desires with every fiber of his body to avoid it. And so he cries out three times, please take this cup from me. But Jesus' prayers for redemption go unanswered. Can you relate with Jesus? Have you ever been in a period of time when you're just not sure if God is there, if he's hearing you? Have you ever prayed to have some cup of trouble taken from you, but it hasn't been? Maybe this isn't some distant event. 
Maybe this is something that you are experiencing right now, right here. Maybe it's some deep sorrow that you've been experiencing. Maybe it's the words you hoped you would never hear from your doctor or from your boss, from your spouse or your children. Maybe you've been crying out your deep, heartfelt desire to God, waiting for him to answer, waiting for him to grant that desire to you, a new job, a companion, renewed health, some hope that seems far off. Whatever it is, I think we all have those things that we have taken to God that in one way or another, we are still waiting for God to answer. And the question is, what do we do in these moments of unanswered prayer? Or maybe that's too simple a question because what we really want to know is what should we do in seasons of unanswered prayer? That's much harder. This had been a long season for Jesus. For three years, he had known that this day was coming. And he wanted to avoid it. We see him in verse 42 asking, in the first half of verse 42, asking, if it's your will Would you take this cup from me? But then we see the words that communicate the greatest act of submission in all of history. When Jesus, after he prays his heart's prayer, follows it up with the words, Yet not my will, but yours be done. How important this act of submission to the Father was. All of human history had been looking forward to the provision that God would provide for sin and death. Nobody could have guessed that it would come in the form of the cross. But everything has been different since those three hours because Jesus said, Yet not my will, but yours be done. But how did Jesus do this? How how did Jesus submit his will? How did Jesus endure the the pain and the humiliation? Why did he allow himself to be arrested? Why didn't he call down legions of angels? Why didn't he curse to hell everybody that was involved in this greatest act of injustice? How did he go through with this? Sure, Jesus was God, but he was also fully human. How did he in his humanness do this? Scripture gives us two great verses that help shed some light on how Jesus persevered and overcame and remained obedient. First, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, we see that it says that Jesus prayed fervently to the one who could save him. This is a clear allusion to Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking to be spared from this. And then it goes on and it tells us that Jesus' prayer was heard. Why? Because of Jesus' reverent submission. Because Jesus submits, his prayer is heard. And we see this in the second half of verse 42 when Jesus says, Yet not my will but yours be done. And then what happens? Immediately, God answers. And in verse 43 we see God sending an angel to strengthen Jesus. Jesus submits. God hears and answers. 
I think it's important to notice something, though. Even though an angel is sent to strengthen Jesus, the trial isn't taken away. In fact, the trial isn't even diminished. It's not made easier in any way. It's only after the angel strengthens Jesus that we even see Jesus praying more earnestly and sweat dripping off of him like like blood. It hasn't gotten easier. But Jesus has been strengthened so that he can persevere, so that he can overcome, so that he can remain obedient to the will of the Father. Second, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we see um, here that it, it gives us the second clue to how Jesus endured. And it says that Jesus was able to endure the cross because of the joy set before him. What was the joy set before Jesus? It wasn't the agony of the cross. The joy set before Jesus are the rewards that wait for Jesus on the other side of the cross. In fact, in the Greek, this word set before meant to literally place before the eyes. Think of it as a vision. God gives Jesus a vision of what is to come and what enduring through the temporary discomfort of the cross will mean for his eternal rewards. We don't know what all those rewards were or what vision exactly God placed in front of Jesus, but we can surmise at least three things from promises in the Bible. First, Jesus knew that he would be raised to new life. You can read Psalm 16 for that. Second, Jesus knew that he would sit down on God's throne and rule with him and be in restored relationship with God, Revelation 3.21. And third, Jesus knew that through this act of obedience, billions of people would come into everlasting relationship with God. And uh, Jesus said this himself in John 3.16 when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus was able to endure the cross because he was able to focus on the eternal rewards that awaited him rather than the trial that was immediately in front of him. Perhaps a picture would help somewhat, and that is, imagine Jesus walking down into a valley, the valley of the shadow of death. And at the bottom of this valley, on the valley floor, is the cross and all of its horrors. And on the other side of that cross, the mountains begin to rise back up forever into eternal victory and glory. The vision that God gives Jesus allows Jesus, instead of remaining focused on the cross, to lift his eyes up and look across the floor of the valley to the other side to where the rewards await him. And it is through that that Jesus is able to face with great courage the trial of the cross that is in front of him. And so can we. There's so much that we could teach and dig into here on this point. But I want to pause here. One of the toughest things about teaching is knowing where to stop. But I want to leave some time for application. 
Because there are some really important things for us to glean from studying Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Some biblical and practical things that you can apply in your life as you think about how to pray. So let's look at them. First, Jesus had developed a healthy habit of prayer. Everybody that was around Jesus knew that his habit, when things were tough, when the challenges that were in front of him were heavy, he always took that to God. And I think our question is, have we developed that healthy habit of prayer like Jesus did? What do the people around you see you do when you are heavy burdened with life's circumstances? Second, Jesus prayed his heart. Jesus, with every fiber of his body, didn't want to, didn't want to experience the cross. And he cries out to God. It's okay for us to pray to God our exact emotions. We don't have to pretty things up. We don't have to pray only the things we think God wants to hear. If you're sad or angry or confused, disoriented, uncertain, whatever it is, it's okay to pray those emotions to God exactly as you feel them. In fact, you will find that as you are more and more honest with God, that you have a closer, more intimate relationship with him. And that's what God has always wanted with you. It's the reason he sent his son to die, so that he could be in a close, intimate relationship with you. So pray your heart. Third, Jesus prays multiple times. It's okay for us to take things back to God again and again. Last week, Gary taught about how Jesus himself told us to knock and to ask and that it was okay to do that more than once. You're not going to irritate God. You're not going to make him angry if you keep bringing up the same old things. God wants to hear from you. Fourth, even though we should pray our heart and even though we should pray repeatedly, don't get stuck in your emotions. Jesus understood that even though his human will and his human desires and his human ways of doing things were something that he needed to bring to God, he also understood that God's will and way was better. He understood that as Gary taught in the first week that God loves us and he wants good things for us and that because of that we can trust him. And the more we trust God, to want what is good for us, the more we trust that God's way is better than our way, it just becomes a baby step from there to saying, yet not my will, but yours be done. Maybe you can't pray that today. Maybe you can't pray your will be done. Your heart just isn't there. One thing I would challenge you with is tell God that. And maybe what you need to ask God this morning is, God, give me a heart to want what you want. Give me a heart to even be able to pray, your will be done. You will be amazed by the transformation in your life that will come about by praying prayers like this. Fifth, as you learn how to pray, your will be done, be prepared to be strengthened. For Jesus, that meant that God sent 
an, an angel to minister to him, to strengthen him, and to prepare him to be able to persevere and overcome. Sometimes God will do that miraculously in our innermost being. And other times he does it through more ordinary means, by the godly men and women that he places in your life. Through your life group, through a summer camp, a women's retreat, a men's retreat, prayer time. God uses the church. In fact, one of the primary purposes of the church is so that we will encourage and build each other up and strengthen one another. God wants to strengthen you for what is coming. Sixth. I need more fingers. <laughs> Sixth. Remain focused on the joy set before you. Just as God gave Jesus a vision of the rewards that waited for him on the other side of the trial, God will place a joy and a vision in front of your eyes that will sustain you. We don't know exactly what those rewards will be. 1 Corinthians 2.9 tells us that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So by definition, it's something we're not going to be able to fully get our head around. But it's going to be amazing. And just as we could surmise three things, three promises that Jesus could tap into, there's at least three things that I'll give you this morning that can sustain you. Be part of that vision that God has given you from his word. First, you, like Jesus, if you are following Jesus, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you will be raised to new life. You will be able to claim the promise of 1 Corinthians 15.55 where Paul writes, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Because death will have no claim on your life. Second, By the way, you'll be reading that in two days if you're following the reading plan. (laughs) Second, like Jesus, when we overcome, we will sit down on the throne with Jesus and rule with him forever. I mean, what an incredible promise this is. Revelation 3.21 tells us that we will sit in a place of honor and authority forever and ever. It's an incredible promise. And third... We are promised that we are going to be in the presence of God. And I want to challenge you to not think of this as a lesser reward. In fact, the greatest reward any of us can hope for is to spend eternity in the presence of God. The presence of God is far greater than sitting on the throne. The presence of God is far greater than being raised to new life. The presence of God is a far greater reward than being reunited with our family and our loved ones. The presence of God is what we should most desire. And as we learn to desire the presence of God more and more, and as we walk down into the valley of the shadow of the death, just as Jesus did with some trial in front of you, God wants to lift your eyes up so that you can look over and across the valley to the other side where the mountains rise up forever, where your 
where you can see the eternal victory and the eternal glory that is waiting for you. It is the reason that Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.17 writes that for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Because when we are focused on Jesus and what is waiting for us, nothing here on earth matters. And that is something that we can use to be strengthened, to be encouraged, to um, bring us through the trials, regardless of what they are. And even if they don't get easier, we have these promises to carry us through. Finally, number seven. When Jesus is done praying, he gets up and he goes and does the will of God. It's not enough that we pray our heart to God. It's not enough that we say the words, your will be done. We must act on whatever it is that God is calling us to do. Remember Jesus' words in John thirteen seventeen, when he said, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Well, as we wrap up this morning, I want to spend just a moment considering the uniqueness of our God, the uniqueness of Jesus. Because there are a lot of religions and a lot of purported gods in this world, but none of them have given up their station in heaven to come down to earth and become a human and experience what we experience Only Jesus has experienced what you're experiencing this morning. Jesus has been let down and disappointed by family and by friends. Jesus has been persecuted and hurt by others. Jesus has gone through periods of crying out to God and not hearing his prayers be answered. Jesus understands where you are at this morning. And he loves you so much that he came to earth and he put himself in a place where he was rejected by God so that you could be accepted. Jesus experienced God pulling away from him because of our sins so that we can experience God drawing close to us because of Jesus' righteousness. Jesus drank the full cup of wrath right down to the dregs so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus died so that we can live. It is only through the sacrifice of Jesus that we can come to the end of our life and have any hope, any prayer of being able to write what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 7 when he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. We have the opportunity to do that because of what Jesus did on the cross. Because Jesus said, yet not my will, but yours be done. So this morning, wherever you are at, whether you're close to God or a stone's throw away, Or much, much further. My prayer for you is that you will hear God this morning. 
that you will understand how much he loves you. That you will pray your heart. And that you will learn to say, yet not my will, but yours be done. So that you can be strengthened in order to persevere and overcome and remain obedient and come to the end of your life and enjoy the rewards and the joy that is set before you. Will you pray with me, please? Father God, thank you for the way that you teach us. But Lord, most of all, thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you that you sent your son to die on a cross for us so that we can come boldly before you with certain belief that there is a hope and a future that you have not abandoned us that even in those moments where we don't think we are hearing you that lord you would strengthen us and prepare us to say yet not my will but yours be done and that you would do a work in us that we would be able to step moment by moment through the trials that you've called us to that we would remain strong that we would persevere that we would remain obedient to your will, that we might come to the end of our lives and look upon your face as the greatest reward and eternal glory ever. In your son's name, amen.